This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we continue our conversation with Tom O'Brien on fundamental principles of communist production and distribution. Um, we kind of did a, a whole lot of general comments last session. So should we like sink our teeth into this? Chapter two. Let's do it. Um, and this is, this is the 19th. So just notes on the edition. We read the first edition, the 1930 edition, which I think if I have this right, this is primarily by Jana Pell and the reworking is more minor in this version but you know then if there's anyone out there that knows the textual truth of this please correct me uh i just found out recently that no one actually knows who wrote uh protocols of the elders of zion <laughs> because it was uh I-, I thought they knew but the story i had heard was basically like a novel or something or ba- based on suspicions and i was you know it's one of those things you think you know something it shakes you I mean, the and, elders of Zion wrote it. I mean, it's right in the name. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. obviously, yeah, yeah, clearly. Mystery, like, <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's see. Basically, this was, you know, the as far as Marx fleshed out in Gothic Critique, Marx's plan for lower stage socialism. And Tom, before we continue, I do want to take back some of what I said last session and say that at, getting through the general social labor and general social use kind of chapters does give you a blueprint for higher stage, not just lower stage communism. So I want to formally rescind my, my suspicion because I think they do actually do a good job of, of demarcating how that would be. And so much of what people have said about this book in terms of, you you know, Paul Maddox intro, for instance, I usually think he's, you know, a decent, like, uh, reader of things. But, you know, saying that this is, that the fundamental principle for full communism isn't here is kind of unfair because taking things out of, you know, labor time accounting is part of the fundamental principles. Yeah, I think that's a bad take all by Paul Matic. Uh, I think, is it junior or senior? Senior. Yeah, I think it's a bad take because we'll see as we get through this, this idea of how we uh, increase, uh, like this, how you can in this in this idea of a socialist society increase the amount of uh, consumption that's done on the purposes of need and not on the purposes of of your own personal consumption of labor chits gives you an actual metric, you know, a hard metric like like a you know what how how hot is it outside oh it's it's 71 degrees like how communist is it outside you can go oh it's like we're 72 percent there like it actually gives you hard 
stuff. It gives you a, a metric where you can look at society and know how you're getting on, on, on that journey to a communist state. I think to say that it doesn't have, uh, it doesn't give a, a, a roadway or a pathway to it is, it's kind of like somebody has an axe to grind or has misunderstood, I think, the general text. Well, I mean, yeah, that's the other kind of, I guess, like broad takeaway is that what you want is uh, the man, like the management and the structure of the society to be as transparent as possible. Because, so, you know, so much of so much of political domination is trying to say, oh, you don't really understand and you don't really get it. Like it actually has to be this way and not the way you want because of thing, things X, Y, and Z that you don't know about that we can't tell you, you know. Uh, whereas having like a system of like transparent labor time accounting, where in principle at least anybody could look at it and go, okay, like this is this is this is where these resources are going. This is the amount of output that's coming from this place. This is kind of the this is where the average is. So this is where you know this unit should be and where you know that unit is above. It, it makes a lot of sense. Although, and then again, on some level, people you know, there's always some room for insanity where people can look at like. Know, pretty obvious like objective information and just say oh that's fake and drive insane conclusions from it but you know uh presumably you'd have to have like a certain level of developed social harmony for any of this to work anyway so. yeah i think it would be easier for people to not do that if they weren't being fed misinformation to begin with however insufficient having good information is <laughs> yeah so he, he like in this second chapter he kind of gets into discussing taking the mickey a bit out of Hilverding's theories of monopoly capitalism this is the idea then Esri like because I was I haven't read Hilverding so I kind of found this idea as kind of absurd in a capitalist system that there would end up being one single capital but this was more I think I was misunderstanding this that it was more the case that uh, the state would take over and nationalize more and more elements of capitalist production when they became essentially monopolies is, is was that hilferding's point i think hilferding's point and again he's coming from this more from you might say a kautskian than a leninist perspective however influential hilferding was on lenin particularly in his theory of imperialism but base, the basic idea is this that the centralizing tendencies that marx did point to in capital because that is part of you know his description of market economics and Engels then develops this a bit too, is that, oh, you know, this is getting more and more centralized. Therefore, it's going to be easier to take over everything at once. <laughs> That's kind of the thing. When we're saying something is like a branch of industry is ripe for nationalization, you know, asterisk, supposedly meaning socialization, but really meaning nationalization, like, it's because market centralizing tendencies have already done a lot of the market distorting despotism for us. And then when you nationalize it, you know, you don't have to do what the Bolsheviks did and collectivize a bunch of shit. It's already so centralized that you can take it over in one fell swoop, basically. By itself, I, you know, I, I, don't think if you think in terms of socialization instead of nationalization, I don't think that this is that bad. But if you see this centralization and cartel creation as the fundamental way that capitalism is building socialism, then you will have a tendency 
to dismiss the proletariat being built up as the link from capitalism to socialism or something of that nature. They nearly get in the way. Is that like, that's what you're saying? Like, you know, workers looking for striking for higher wages and stuff like that actually leads to a lack of accumulation of capital or concentration. So it's like, it's like, a, you know, a, a, something in the spoke in the works or whatever. Yeah, in a sense. And like, I think this is sort of a different discussion today, maybe because look around, I don't see the proletariat, you know, having this ten, you know, this tendency towards being better and more of a master of the world. That essence of the workers movement has kind of, you know, been kneecapped at the very least in, you know, the high GDP countries, uh, high income countries or whatever. Whereas like at the time, and Marx certainly thought this, that, you know, yes, the productive forces and, you know, the way like building things up, but there's also that like conscious element of the workers movement becoming, you know, the, the class in itself becoming the class for itself. Um, and essentially that was, I th- and I think this argument is just harder to make today. We can see the Hilferding sort of tendencies, probably the most succinct like new statement of this is in the book, People's Republic of Walmart, Walmart's centralization and internal, you know, it's, it, it's internal non-market structure is paving the way for socialism in terms of developing that kind of internal cartel logistics, right? There's an innocuous version of this and like a scary version of this. (laughs) And I actually think that book is good at trying to articulate something less terrifying. But ultimately, like, ultimately the point is that the way capitalism is building socialism is not through like, you know, humanity or something, getting more creative potentials in, I don't know, in the productive forces or in like, in terms of creative labor power or in like, um, or in like workers organization, you know, RIP. Um, but Rip. it's actually just the, the cartelizing despotism that comes out of a big central agent controlling everything. Hey, that's kind of like state communism. I've, I've a question like, do, um, like, I don't know too much about, like, Soviet economic history, but did the Soviet model not follow something close to this as well about what was nationalized, like, in a kind of a Hilferdinging way, wait till they became a bit more uh, better uh, private firms and then just took them over? Oh, there there was, um, I think we discussed this last time, right? Like, um, in chapter one, he directly compares the social democratic and the Bolshevik examples but the Bolsheviks were not necessarily dealing with branches of industry that were quote, right for nationalization as in like centralized and cartelized. So sometimes they would just take that shit over anyway and, you know, just gobble up the smaller bits, which feels more despotic, but like, you know, as opposed to like the Hilferding Kautskian proposal where you let the market do it. Um, and then just take over that. But essentially, it's the same thing. These are variants of the same way of looking at it. Yeah, I, I think I, I think the I don't know. I don't know if, I've, if I'm clarifying anything. No, that's good. Yeah, I wasn't sure whether we said it last time or anything. Yeah, yeah. 
but we, we did talk about that last time. In fact, what the hell else did we talk about? We talked about that whole first chapter, like, and kind of our, our broad outlines of how we felt about the book at the time, which, you know, we weren't finished with. Um, and frankly, I'm still not finished with because I find so much to chew on. I don't know. Should we try chapter two? <laughs> I thought we were doing chapter two. <laughs> so did I. Like, um, okay, I have some notes here, uh, kind of two. Oh, you're totally right. Yeah, we. I guess we are doing chapter two because Hilferding comes up again. Yeah, like the kind of two basic things I think that he really hits in, in this chapter, just from my notes here, so... Uh, is this he, he introduces the socially uh, socially average social labor time which is basically like the socially necessary labor time uh as the basis for price kind of and um he also like this this line this is kind of this is the kind of the, the the language i like the writing i like he says in the final analysis there remains no other road forward than that of reconstructing the entire system of production in such a way that the exact relationship of the producers to the products fashioned by their labor becomes the foundation of the social system of production. And I think that's kind of like the whole book wrapped up into like one sentence. And that's kind of what we're going to be looking to pick apart and to see why that's true. But I think that is the beauty of the book for me, that that's, that's what it gets to. And, you know, uh, it this positions, the book here positions for me, like, and that idea um, of allowing the production to be essentially reasonably decentralized, very decentralized, and to be run by the producers themselves in an open and transparent way. And like, I think the point that is made here, I think intrinsically, and also I think in cybernetics as well, is that the actual political and social structures themselves are actually calculation devices, you know, they are algorithms, you know, the, the, the nature of like how you organize your production it is itself a form of calculation that it doesn't have to be an input output table to be calculation. And this is a very, very important thing for me because like if I imagine like being a, I always use shoes, like a shoe, a shoe factory or something, and I, I'm designing a new shoe and I'm thinking like, what kind of lace will I buy will I put into that shoe like in 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 what in what sense is it efficient for that information to go up to an algorithm in the sky to for to to choose which type of input or output I use with that shoe like it, it just it just seems kind of like a waste of output to push it up the chain to come down for them to choose something that they have no idea or control over that the the place where the computation is most efficient is they're in that shoe factory that the workers or the designers themselves say, we'll take this type of leathery tassel or, or whatever. And they know what is out there. They know they have their catalogs of stuff they can use and they can design it there. That there is calculation, there is calculation being done in these situations all the time. And I think sometimes in the left, they're, uh, particularly in, I think, the Marxist left, uh, a kind of a, a, a thought about uh uh planning that things that thinks you have to do it all in one giant central computer and that it seems to me that it's way more efficient to use social structures where where you can because that is like a very optimal form of computation and more than just computation it's it it, it kind of 
resides uh, where it should be for people to feel like this is their system and this system is not a, you know, some kind of object over their heads. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful book and having the, I don't know, I'm of two ways about the pros, but fuck the pros. The point is that like trying to establish something that's in like the direct experience of the workers. It So I guess what's going on in this section, I think, is not, this is not only a question about, you know, how should politically things run, but it's also a solution to the knowledge problem that prices are supposed to solve. What's essentially, what they essentially go over here is the way that state socialists that are looking towards central planning actually can't solve the knowledge problem in exactly the way that, you know, Weber, like Max Weber and Ludwig von Mises spell out that you're dealing with too complex of a system, too complex of an economy. You need some kind of unit of planning and having a central statistics bureau and and having like in-kind calculation, which is a direct stab at like war communism, um, that would, you know, form the basis for the non-market modes of allocation in Stalinism. Yeah, that essentially, there's a knowledge problem, not to mention, you know, the, the total like prison state under the name, uh, under the banner of Marx, but totally bracketing that, just practical economic stuff. There's a knowledge problem in war communist, like socialism that doesn't have a universal unit of measure that there isn't in a system that has the workers like actually managing production themselves. Yeah, through the calculation of labor time, that's the key thing. Instead of a money price, we have labor calculation and everything flows out of it. It's so, so here's the back and forth, right? Um, so this is a chapter on the disciples of Marx or the subsection on the disciples of Marx. Um, during scientific socialism, there's the admission that Marx left little about the economic foundations of communism, but most Marxists agree that money and markets disappear. Um, they don't really say anything about production for the most part. Um, there's a Hilferding theory about capital capitalist concentration of communism. There's a skepticism that, you know, measuring for regulation and accounting is impossible without some unit. Um, then there, then you have market socialists that are like, well, okay. There's people like Block that thinks, you know, a means of control to replace market mechanism is impossible. Even Kautsky comes to accept this view. And so basically the learned theoreticians of the socialist movement come to embrace money. They seem to embrace everything. <laughs> like, you know, I'm not sure if it's in this exact chapter, but like Kautsky goes on to accept like, you know, uh, uh, value production, uh, money, uh, exchange relations, uh, differential pay, hierarchy, like the whole shebang. Well, in some ways, the answer to that lies in what they say at the beginning of the chapter, which is that, you know, we've basically reached a point in the political struggle where these more abstract questions of what a socialist economy really looks like are no longer purely theoretical, and they're no longer purely utopian specul speculation, 
which is why they wrote this thing in the first place. Um, and so, so yeah, similarly, somebody like Kautsky, who is more kind of, I guess, directly engaged, like, you know, the nitty gritty, like politicking of the day and like what, how the class struggle is going to realize itself and like in, in its immediacy, you know, in Germany might, I could definitely understand why somebody like that would kind of just default to markets because, I mean, the fact is you're probably not going to, you know, even with like a good time shift system ready to rock and roll, you're probably not going to abolish money immediately you know, upon taking like political power or, you know, some, or at the, at the point of something, some kind of general strike, you know what I mean? Like, so there, there has to be like some, the question of transition is the hardest question. But I, Later I think in the book, they established that they think it's going to take like a few months. Yeah. But like, I think even Jake to be a bit more harsh on Kautsky is like that. He actually came up with, came to the conclusion that it was impossible to come up with a price for a product so like one of the things that they start introducing the chapter is the like socially necessary labor time or they call it like under this they call it the uh, average social labor time so that so if there's three shoe factories the average amount of time it takes to create a shoe is like four hours or whatever and that's the price that should be on a shoe according to you know this book they think this is the right way where like Kautsky comes to the conclusion that it's impossible even to come up with a price if one shoe was take a long time and another shoe takes a short time. He doesn't. He even thinks the idea of a labor time price is impossible. Like so, it's not just a political thing. He's making like theoretical. He like he basically got got his head mashed. It looks like theoretically by Weber and von Mises contributions. But like one thing, I I I have read. Uh, and it's about seven or eight years ago, and I can't remember where I read it, but like von Mises himself uh, did say that labor time calculation, like that's actually in this book. I only remember it during the week, but he said that that doesn't suffer from the uh, calculation problem, which is quite a, an admission by, you know, these Austrian guys. That's interesting. Right. Yeah. And this sort of ties into why the authors, or perhaps this was in an introduction, I forget, but it said in the book that there is an alternative that's more or less spelled out in Marx. And the real reason that people don't know about it, even Marxists, is that Marxists don't like it. And so Ludwig von Mises is like, yeah, this, you know, Soviet communism can't work. Obviously, labor time accounting would totally work. Marx, you know, the proposal that Marx puts forward, I don't know if he says it would totally work, but he says that it would at least solve the knowledge problem, which von Mises is known for. Um, this theorist, Otto Leichter, I think his name is, Leichter, um, who the author spend the most time criticizing, I think, overall, besides like Hilferding, but like their engagement with Leichter goes throughout the work, mainly because he does labor time accounting, um, but he doesn't do it for distribution or something. Like, and so they hate him for being or having getting so much right and getting that wrong. Yeah, I think he essentially when we get to the general social, the GSUs, whatever they call, I can never remember what they stand for. What does it stand for? General social, general social use. That, yeah, so the GSU, so basically like the stuff today we, we pay with our taxation, like our schools and our hospitals. Uh, so that kind of general idea of consumption at point of 
need and not uh con- you know personal consumption using labor chits or <coughs> or whatever um but i think that he does not include the gsus uh in the labor time production and that's where he gets confused where what works so well with these is that they use it just both in production and they apply the same kind of logic into these uh you know more kind of uh let's call them the kind of commie establishments where it's on the base of need and it's the kind of unity of how they apply the labor time planning in the both that makes the system work where like a lot of these people uh they either think that you shouldn't use labor time you know and he goes he states like uh Neurath and Vargas and Kautsky but uh Leichter gets it half right and that's what I think you know that to be explicit that's that's the bit he doesn't get and it's that crucial element that allows you to understand uh how the price system and the labor time accounting works in it. it's like an organic like it is and there's like a unity between distribution and production that that's what's so amazing about it like it regulates both in this kind of like unity which is really cool it's not only a production distribution but alienation and exploitation that this s- solves it's kind of it's a very elegant solution to two sets of problems there and i think the problems in marxism are embodied in kautsky's trajectory and like which he was following he ended up he ends up very being very close to edward bernstein the re- revisionist who is you know uh, inspired by weberian soci- sociology and you know turns marxism into something that's quite comfortable for capitalism the emergence of a new state form and the emergence of a new economy so yeah it's it's very elegant it's, it's you know in a way a little too elegant but to Nothing's sort never of, good enough is it well, now it's uh, too <laughs> God well it. i mean I, I mean you know we, we were we were <laughs> we were having a discussion about this before and we'll get into that you know it it doesn't get into the messiness of you know cybernetic planning but again it's 1930 so i'm willing to hand wave that kind of next in the chapter is him taking on syndicalists which much of the critique of council communism is, that is normally out there people basically treat council communism as if it's yugoslavia where like you know, there's self-management, but they didn't change anything about capitalism, where this is syndicalism is the word that he uses for that sort of thing. So there's like a really funny author, I don't know, something called free communism, which you just make sound very stupid. Seriously, it, it, it sounds like the Occupy movement. That's what I wrote down in my notes here, how everything is like, I don't know, maybe that's... <laughs> pretty bad i just it, it struck me like he really slates them for being wishy-washy and 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 how and and also how his ideas collapse basically into central planning even though they don't want to although although you know what he has respect for muller Lenning in a way because he's like good at like asking the questions and they essentially chastises him for not being you know for being like too idealist but he agrees with the author that there's there's only like one attempt to try to solve the problem before it was given up on. So he's, he's down at the anti-Bolshevik stuff in it. The, like this proposal, you know, it's, 
it's another it's another thing where it's so close in motivation that it's like it's sort of similar but then by the time he gets to what is this sebastian fare whatever universal happiness he basically makes it sound like hallmark card communism oh sorry that's who i was talking about that's who i was talking about sorry uh, yeah okay yeah but well because he has he seems to have some respect for anarcho-syndicalism which would make sense he's a council communist that's you know there's some mutual inspiration there but kind of having trouble with the method but I think he does a good job of presenting someone who's relatively like respectable, quoting him at length, I guess, versus Thaura, where you basically have like centralized exploitation and planning based on free agreements rather than labor time planning with dumb natural comparisons. And of course, the Central Bureau gospel statistics stacking that knows all. It's basically like anarcho Bolshevism. You know what I mean? It's like recapitulating. The problems of Bolshevism with like Hallmark card slogans. Like, this is the guy who you know is opposed to power, as opposed to power in itself. Yeah, the main thing is like he, you know, he's concerned about trying to have a planned economy without some kind of abstract universal measure of account. Um, you know, because it's either it's pretty much it's either money or it's going to be time shits. You know what I mean? Like, you have to have one of those two things in order to like. To compare like this massive commodities uh against one another there has to be some referent uh yeah and you it's hard i just having like again oh, unless you've hit like such a state of super abundance that it doesn't matter you know like trying to trying to manage like yeah trying to manage scarcity just on like a with a from a purely like physical standpoint like or in weight or something just is, yeah it doesn't really work what about uh clout credits where you have like you know who's the most clout i mean that's that might be the nightmare world we're headed towards but yeah that's um, the transitional measures towards the actual um black mirror mode of production that we're headed towards it's great great stuff tom there's actually a community um, <laughs> episode about that of what an episode of, of what episode yeah there's an episode of a there's a sitcom uh by the guy who made a rick and morty called community where like at the community college, they introduce an app that like where you can rank the people you know, and so it rapidly devolves into like this dystopian society where everyone is like their social status within the school is set up by like their ranks on this app. Yeah, and it sort of ends with a kind of like social revolution. Anyway, I, I can actually great. I can actually imagine an app like it's a it's surprising an app like that hasn't actually caught on. It hasn't. Uh, I mean, like, an actually strictly just ranking everyone. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's fair. I, I do want to clarify that, you know, he has a lot of respect for the plea for clarity that's presented in the book Narco-Syndicalism by Muller Lenning. I just want, to, just want to stress that. And he spends a lot of time pouring derision on the book Universal Happiness. So it's kind of like the two kinds of anarchisms that you'll see the ones that are really good at asking questions and then the you know total bullshit like fig leaf for naked despotism so like i think in this like the this one he starts getting deep into the kind of actual calculation of how we do this it's kind of like um will we will we get into the like will i will i hit the equation or what do you think 
Yeah, so it's the uh, P plus C in brackets uh, plus L equals yeah. total product. So this is like the equivalent, like if, you're, if you've read Capital or you've done any kind of even basic reading of like Marxist Capital, you have your like, you know, your, your, your constant capital and your variable capital and, you know, your surplus value. This is the kind of commie equivalent to this stuff where we have like our, our fixed capital, our circulating capital and our labor, right? And our, our fixed and our circulating capital are not recorded in money time, or in, in money. So you don't have like 20,000 quid of capital of, of, you know, circulating and then 40 of fixed. It's measured in labor time. So we have P plus C, our fixed and our circulating, and the amount of labor goes in, and then we have our output. So if like this was a shoe factory, we'd have our fixed capital would be your buildings and maybe our machines. And then our circulating capital would be the leather and the laces. And then our labor, our L is the amount of hours go in. And the total value of the output then is P plus C plus L. And the fixed capital wouldn't fully go in. It would be like a depreciation amount. So like that's the basic formula that all of this stuff sits upon. You know, it's the equivalent it's it's basically like value theory for communism but it's not yeah we're not saying a value theory but you know you know what i mean well it's it's talking about how yeah how labor time will be embodied um in like the commodities produced you know for society as a whole right or and any particular like object as well right so like the like the labor so wait let me let me see if i just understand so you basically have labor time accounting in like fixed and circulating capital and then you basically add that together or i guess it would be a, a percentage of that that's used over time at least in, t- in the case of fixed capital and then those labor hours are combined with the immediate labor that's done by the workers at the unit and that that basically becomes like the labor time quote-unquote price in the final commodity right well for an individual factory that would just be the amount of labor that's in those shoes say for example but the price will be um averaged over all of the shoe factories so one right, one right. Sh- yeah so like so the, the actual uh labor time contained in the output for one factory will be different say so say if they got a better machine or a worse machine than another one to be different but when that when that shoe ends up goes into the distribution and it goes to be sold it will have the average amount of labor on it as its price. Right, right. No, yeah, it, it averages out across, you know, like an industrial sector. And yeah, that, that makes sense. But for a certain standpoint, the way you think about it is, because obviously like the, and labor time amongst in particular commodities will, will probably fluctuate slightly depending on how much like human labor goes into, you know, the production of each one. But it all kind of averages out to a certain standardized level. I wonder how much, how much incentive is like built in for to like reduce like where does labor time reduction come in into the schema does that just come from like you know external research and development that's maybe like funded in the GIUs and then is like applied to industries as a whole or like test run in particular like factories or is that something that you'd want to like I don't know induce laborers to work in such a way that they don't have to work as much you know what I'm saying yeah, like I think later on we'll get into the accumulation and they explicitly say like, you know, the society as a whole says we want to increase the, you know, production of commodities. So we're going to say have 5% accumulation this year or 10%. And 
like the the money will or you know whatever the the amount of resources in society will then go to the factories uh to try and help to increase their productivity so you know that's that'll be and then it would so for these factories let's say for example you got three shoe factories two have got old shitty machines one's got the new machine and they get some new uh, lump of capital in the shoe factories guild this is the way they describe it working would essentially go okay we've got 100 grand for a new machine what are we going to do we're going to put it in factory one or two boys which do you want and then they go oh together as a guild they make the decisions on where to spend the you know the accumulation and then you have new machinery new output but again with at a societal level it might be the case where you say well you know we want to uh increase our productivity but also reduce our hours at the same time but like you know that's the kind of general gist of the process i think that they're putting forward yeah i guess if i were to make any tweaks here it's that like this book is so weird because it's focusing on labor time accounting without speaking very clearly about like value as such like the kind of marxist capitalist category so it's very easy to sort of like slip into talking about the about you know a sort of communist value which like i'm not used to people writing this way and then kind of being like yeah you know whatever you know what i mean like <laughs> i don't you know about the the word value or the way that that's used like they don't use the word value very often like um but it's it does pop up here and there in a way that it comes up. Uh, what comes up is price. Uh, value doesn't really come up because it's not, because there is no kind of contradiction. There is no contradiction. There is no like a a, a value and a and a and a fo- and a and a form which is price in the same way because the the value in in capitalist production the value is the socially necessary labor time, but there's this other price thing. And here we're saying that the price is is essentially the price, yeah. And so there's, there's there is not another form coming in here. So it's true. Okay. So I think maybe in our discussion we were, we talked a little bit about value. We and we were talking about like fixed capital and, and things like that. Like it's I don't know. It's it's a it's a good. I guess what I'm trying to say here is that like this proposal is so concrete that we that like or you know more much more concrete because there's an equation or two um than a lot of things in, in this um that it's essentially giving us the or attempting at least trying to give us the laws of motion of a communist economy like right yeah perfect like absolutely that's the beauty of it that's that's uh basic genius of it and you know they're not like difficult equations the same way that marx's equations are Goddamn simple when you see them. Now, when you get into the math of, you know, some other implications of stuff, you know, it can get a bit tricky. But like the actual basic equations are, it's not much different than X X and Y equals three. You know, that's the level that these equations are. But the implications are profound. These equations are abstractions because there get to be later parts of the book where they, you know, talk about how, well, we actually have to like complicate this in order to factor in like different sectors of production or whatever. You know, so it's it's tempting. I mean, in some ways, I want to wrap my head around it and kind of understand, okay, like, how would this work? But I don't want to accidentally do, you know, the thing like, oh, well, what about a toothbrush? How do you own that? You know? But, but for this, 
<laughs> so, yeah. At least it's, it's a it's a valid question here. Think One of the toothbrushes. Yeah. I just bought no, myself um, bamboo and bamboo toothbrushes. They're pretty good. Oh, I recommend yeah. them. Nice. Wait, are like the bristles nice. bamboo or is it like the hand like the handle is bamboo? I think the bris the bristles might be pigs' hairs or something like that, or some <laughs> kind of animals' hairs. I, I don't know. I can that. see why they didn't front load that. Yeah, but uh, I think I have the wrong thing. I don't think it's actually pig's hairs, but uh, it's <laughs> what is it? I can't remember. But it, it's pretty good when you get used to them. They're it sounds pretty hard. good. He could, there is a there is a section here called the concept of value held by socialists. It doesn't I, get that much into the concept of value, but rather into the wage differentials. Yeah, I think this is a very important part. Like, uh, uh, personally, uh, you know, uh, I'm. I really not into the concept of different wage rates in a socialist or communist society. I know like uh, we kind of, I think we had some discussion last time about it, but he says one statement here about like um, how, what, what the impact of these differing rates here, I think is quite an important thing. Well, I, I just read a sentence here. This, this however expresses nothing other than the fact that in such a society, the struggle for improved conditions of labour has not ceased, that distribution of the social product still bears an antagonistic character, and that the struggle for the distribution sorry, excuse me, and the struggle and that the struggle for the distribution of the product still continues. This struggle is in reality nothing other than a struggle for power and would have to be conducted as such. Like I, I think that's a very strong argument he makes here for getting away from, you know, the idea of higher wages. Like he, he, he really slates Kautsky in this, you know, uh, where, yeah, and you know, basically the idea of, you know, skilled labor versus non-skilled labor. Like you'd have to think, like just even that that general idea uh, of skilled and non-skilled communist or socialist labor it essentially goes diametrically opposed to the kind of things that Mark talk, Max talked about you know to be a fisherman in the morning and a, an accountant in the evening and a stripper right. ram in the afternoon you know I mean yeah not to recapitulate this conversation too much but you know you don't get there immediately you know like a good a good example honestly would be um, what Cuba did when they basically uh, took over the healthcare system there and there was a huge revolt where, you know, a bunch of doctors basically went on strike more or less and refused to you know work for the government. Well, they just trained a bunch of people in it and they trained so many people in being doctors that there's a lot of guys driving cabs around Havana because it pays about as well as being a doctor. Right. You've basically you've been through just education. You've abolished like the skill rents there. But, you know, getting getting to that for society as a whole, you know, there's always going to be some areas where, you know, you have to. You have to have incentives in order to properly allocate uh, alloc allocate areas where there is a lack of lack of necessary skilled workers, or there's just a lack of people who want to do a particular type of work. There have to be incentive structures in place of some sort. Otherwise, you just have to you know. Otherwise, you're basically forcing people. Yeah, like I suppose it's. I I don't disagree with you. Like in the, in a transition period, is like stuff will. You know, I I know I don't think about it like in a, an absolutist sense, in the you know in the immediate. But I would probably kind of go. I I, I personally am very much a fan of the stuff of uh, of of paricon of of job complexes 
And I, I, I think that most stuff can be covered with job complexes. And I, I, I just think that I think even just for the development of an actual human being, uh, having to do some shitty work is character building. <laughs> so I, I, I much prefer like as a general, as a general rule, uh, that should be the approach. But you know, I think he makes he makes a strong argument here anyway for why he goes that way. That's what I would say. I, yeah. I, I actually I, I want to take back something I said earlier that he's he's not that interested in value. In that it's just that like he thinks it's you can build up the concept of how socialists think of value by thinking about the idea of like there being, you know, a basic worker's wage and then, you know, a multiple of the different wages and how how this ends up mirroring the labor power and like labor power compensation on the market um if you make this a permanent factor of time chits planning now like it he they accept this as a transitional measure to the time chits planning system but that would be like a you know for th- for them, making that a permanent feature of time chits is a bad idea, and essentially is a socialist recapitulation of value. So that's the that's what I actually I've been looking for. And despite the fact that this is named after value, and there's a lot of a description of value, the actual like word and the explicit point only comes up kind of deep into the section. Yeah, I would think as well as well because he wants to demarcate what they're talking about with respect to Marx's value theory. So I'd say that's why they don't want to use it as a term because that would even probably increase the level of confusion. No, that's a virtue of this text. But I think I think what he's saying though, because again, these these people are state capitalist theorists of the Soviet Union, right? They seem to think that this, you know, this is one of those things where the, the Soviet Union is capitalist because it's an industrial class society and it has exploitation, which again, I don't agree with that, but that's the line of thought. And I, but I do agree that it has exploitation and, you know, it's an industrial class society, right? Like, I don't think that yeah. makes it capitalism, but it, I think it only makes sense if you think that it's paving the way for capitalism. It's, it doesn't have capitalist laws of motion, but so much get, of it is oriented towards it. It's getting like, there. You know, the tendency is back towards right. it. I, I think, like, did in the Soviet Union, they had, did they have, like, large pay differentials? Yeah, I think so. And they were using money remuneration. Like, was an that astrophysicist was the virtue. getting more than a, a fellow working in the mines? Or, that or was kind the of mines... the virtue. That was kind of the virtue of the in-kind uh, periods of Soviet history. Like the, like the Stalinist attempts, uh, and war communism, you know, as like, <laughs> as fucking desperate and horrible as they are, they were viewed by, you know, especially like the internal communist left as some sort of attempt implement something non-capitalist. Yeah. I, I, I mean, do understand the that there were, were wage differentials. Like, yeah, the differentials weren't even that great, like for the elites though, which is kind of part of why the Soviet Union collapsed because they looked over at like what Western elites were getting and were like, well, shit we're all basically living like middle-class Westerners, you know, and we think we're living the high life, but we could have like a yacht that goes inside your yacht, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like that. uh, What's that that one? Is it like, is it like the six birds or 12 birds? Oh, the turducken? Where you have all the birds. You know about that turducken life? 
was it like you have a bird inside a bird inside a bird inside a bird and you have it like as a meal have you seen these like the inception of birds yes yeah. yeah, well, it's a chicken inside a duck inside a bird. It's the it's John Madden's turducken. <laughs> no, but like there's more. There's like you can get like 12 birds inside it, apparently. Oh, man. I, sh- I, I should have known. Ones. I should have known that it's developed since the turducken. Verifiable Patricia doll of, of ascending and descending birds. I'm sure someone's eating it. You know, bird to the 12th power. <laughs> right now i had i had an argument with somebody once about that somebody told me about it and i said well that's physically impossible because you know <laughs> the bird would have to be exponentially bigger each time it had to be bigger than the planet and then they showed me a picture of it and it's like all right okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know empiricism's not so bad sometimes <laughs> kick the ass out of my shitty man <laughs> <laughs> there's a really there's a really good sentence in here that I highlighted in, from this part where he's talking about social reproduction, which I think is very, like a very clear kind of way of putting things, the difference between capitalist uh, reproduction. So this is what he says here. He says, in, the exact, in, the, in exactly the same way as the reproduction of the impersonal part of the productive apparatus is under capitalism, a function of the individual capitalist group. In a similar way, the reproduction of labor power under that system is an individual function of the worker. Under communism, however, in the same way that the reproduction of the impersonal part of the reproduction apparatus becomes a social function, the reproduction of labor power becomes a social function likewise. I really like that. You know, that's like a line Marx would write. Let's get that straight. Like the the firm itself, you're on your own. The firm has to survive on its own in this cold, heartless, capitalist way. And the individual, the laborer, has to has to survive on their own in capitalism. But under the communist system production we're talking about here, the reproduction is not like the the firms don't go out. Uh, they don't go bust. There's no like profit or loss. You know, there's like more productive and less productive fir- firms, but there's no profit and loss. The firms don't go bust. Uh, so the society looks after, you know, reproduces all of these factories itself. And also the society collectively reproduces the individual through these general social use elements and also getting paid the proper goddamn wages and not getting exploited. So I think it's a really wonderful way of kind of looking at the dissimilarities between capitalism and this form of kind of council communistic planning. I think a lot of, especially super left comms, you know, would shy away from calling communism a mode of production. You know, like there's just like a basic Ugh. way of talking. That, no, seriously. No, no, I'm really. Give like, me a gun. That, Give me a gun. Well, there's a basic way of talking that's so straightforward about this pamphlet that I do like. You know, that it's not totally up its own ass because it's still related to worker struggles at, at this point it's still related to, you know, like a form of organization that was, you know, that would, that would continue to be an important source of workers power throughout the 20th century up until maybe like the eighties or something. There, I don't know. There's, there's something alive to this that I guess is not there in a lot of contemporary left communism, communization, whatever. And, um, it, it, that is a strength of this text. And I think like the hyper paranoid way I've approached it because of communization, kind of assassination of, of the character of council communism, 
following the sort of, uh, I don't know, a spaghetti left, like, you know, Italian communist left tradition. Like, I think that's sort of a poison pill in communization because it's a way to smuggle in this total skepticism of modernity that the Italians had. <laughs> and, um, and sometimes the valid Bordigas critique of council communism, where the hell of capitalism is the firm, not the fact the firm has a boss. That is a valid thing that the Italian left is bringing to the table. Like there is a way in which a factory is, is a capitalist thing and communist production should be less alienating than that. Like totally like full communist production, you know, hopefully you, you get people out of all being cooped up in shitty factories. Hopefully that, you know, does happen. Like, but there is just so much of this text. And like, as the more I read the tradition that I feel like communization sort of lies about it because it's following this Bordigas critique and it, and maybe is overestimating how big of a break you need to make um, in order to kind of transcend the problems of previous socialisms. Yeah, like, I think when it comes to the critique of, like, you know, that the factories, even if you didn't have bosses, they'd still be oppressive. I think there's definitely something in that. I read this book called The Forces of Production a few years ago by some guy from MIT. He's dead now. But uh, it was a very, very boring book, but it was a historical uh, look at, say, I think it was particularly kind of, uh, um, kind of, design and metalwork machinery in the Amer in America post war and how uh the most efficient way to design these machines wasn't taken by capital because there was class relations they didn't want the, the metal workers being uh, extremely skilled and being able to uh disrupt uh production for you know higher wages or whatever and so the government like plowed like tens and hundreds of millions of pounds into these uh, projects to try and like uh, design it in a way such that it would literally be plans coming from a boss and people just taking bits and stuff off like assembly lines and this was like a 20 30 40 year project to to do this and it's like absolutely if we were to have a revolution in the morning and we had all these machine our factories in our machine our machines in our factories that were run under worker councils it would take ages for the technology to shift you know, it would it would take a long time for engineering thinking and all that to shift towards production of assembly lines that aren't despotic. You know, you know, computer software that's not like uh, based upon a manager being able to see everything you're doing. Like, no doubt that like that was is not something that would uh, be able to be switched on overnight in a way that labor time planning could you know could feasibly be turned on in a few years. Like that's something that the actual, you know, essentially kind of superstructure element of capital would still be deep into the, you know, minds and the structures of, of production of a nascent communist society and would take, uh, I would think, like decades and decades to wash out. Some fixed capital works a long ass time, you know, like uh, Mike McNair was saying he was working in a cannery in like East London in the 70s and they were using the same machines that they used prior to World War One. you know that's not uncommon 
in a lot of like heavy industry type stuff. You know, I, I, that's probably why a lot of the you know existing like communists and the sort of Italian communist left feels like we're just going to have to break some of that shit. <laughs> we're just going to have to like you know get rid of some of that shit, right? Like, yeah, like, that's part of the revolution. Like, like literally, that's 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 where the impulse is coming from. Like, like you might have a societal decision, like literally, let's increase like the accumulation rate really high to 30% now so that we can redesign and just like get rid of these bad social forms that are in our everyday working structures, you know? I, I think I think there's an argument to be made that it would be a priority in a way that it never was before so that it might not take many decades. Yeah, that's a good point. That's why I do feel like, because right now it's about the maximization of like output value. But if it was to the end of reducing labor time in order to free people up to, you know, pursue, you know, like life, you know, like that, that you probably would have more of an impact and you wouldn't have to have workers because a lot of places workers fight to maintain their positions in production. You know, like there's, I remember, yeah, I might've mentioned this in the last one, but like the president or whatever, the CEO of uh, Hyundai was like, yeah, I want to automate all this, but like the unions won't let me. Isn't the container ships, like in the ports, the dock workers, like that's like a, that fight, you know, they've managed to slow down containerization for a long time. <laughs> Yeah. I just wanted to defend what he actually says about value here. It actually seems like something of a rough approximation, but it's like the way that something like the law of value could emerge in this system would be through, in the author's opinion, wage differentials. And that's why he groups ultimately Leichter in with Kautsky and Neurath is because they get the distribution side wrong. And for this text, this text is super interested in distribution. This text is super interested in like the consumption side and in the social reproduction side, which is highly unusual, as far as I can tell, for workers movement oriented theoreticians, which tended to have the volume one fixation you know, all about production. I am shocked by this because, I don't know, for like years, I, I would say, well, I guess, you know, yes, yeah, Stalinism was awful, but I, I guess you got some good social reproduction, you know, Maoism out of it or whatever in the 70s. And 40 years earlier, this is here. <laughs> like, it definitely, like, it's, you know, it's absolutely distribution is seen as a unity with production. Like, fundamentally... Uh, and particularly as we go towards communism, it basically turns, it shifts, it will shift entirely to essentially distribution or work within distribution uh, as opposed to work within production. Like, uh, I remember reading something a couple of years ago uh, about the, the amount of, uh, just getting back towards um, how we could retool, say, stuff to be communist factories as opposed to capitalist factories. Like I saw, read a stat. I think this is like it's not a new statistic. It's maybe ten years ago that uh, one in four workers in the United States uh, works in essentially um, security of some form or another. So actually managing so the surf the products don't get stolen <laughs> at some level, which is you know like think about the inefficiency of that. That's like that's not productive labor. That's a cost. It's like one in four workers is is basically. A, a cost 
so th- I think that there is massive uh, capability towards uh, actually retooling, you know, and, and disrupting entire, you know, if you if you got rid of all of that labor and put it towards like retooling factories, you know, they did it. One thing they, that they say in this book, one of the few things they say positive about like the Soviet Union is like how quickly they put their product, the distribution centers together. And um, like at, they do say that, like, you know, they give credit where credit is due. And then they also give credit to capitalist societies for retooling in a war. They say, look what happened in the war. They totally retooled everything. We could retool. And I think that there is definitely that capability. Uh, that's that's, you know, that revolutionary capability is absolutely there. Well, yeah, I mean, there's that and there's the whole like David Graeber, like bullshit jobs thing where there's just all these different like private sector competing bureaucracies where it's all just, you know, people, you know, entering spreadsheets and like moving numbers around and like trying to like skim value off the top of the global productive system. You know, you get rid of that. And that's part of the reason that's one thing. That's one reason Obama didn't go for Medicare for all is because he was like, well, what about all the people employed in insurance? Like what will happen to them? Yeah. Who's thinking of the poor insurance clerks? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like uh, no joking. Like I've had a lot of different jobs in my time. Right. And uh, I think uh, pretty much every single one of them was useless. Apart from when I worked in my father's like uh, where my father was my father's. It was like a farmer's co-op. They produce milk cartons and two liters of milk and cream and stuff. And I used to work on a two liter machine there and sometimes in the bottling machine. And I'd say that was one of the only few times I've done reasonable labor in my entire life. Like, yeah. Yeah. And even there, the cows doing most of it. Yeah. Poor fucking cows. This is why people don't have super pride in work. <laughs> it doesn't feel like you're building a new society. Feels like you're just kind of dicking around in something that doesn't need to be there that you actively wish for the abolition of the whole time. Well, it's interesting too. On the converse of that, you get from people who are, you know, part of the owner, owner, either the owner class or like the class that is involved in like finance and like you know, like I said, skimming value off the top of everything. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, you, if you listen to those people, they're like the hardest workers on the planet. You know what I mean? Oh, like well, they, they're right, the workers. Yeah. Right. They have the, um, the Protestant values that have like transmuted. It's it's really strange because in America, workerism is d- definitively right wing and kind of always has been, in, except with some small exceptions, like with, you know, some like important exceptions, like like the, the yeoman myth really dicked up our ability to look at, you know, like some some idea of workers you know, a workers movement without imbibing some, you know, racial settler shit. Like the IWW is like one of the deepest exceptions. Like, and, you know, even, even some like really heroic movements in the history are not devoid of this. Like, well, it's also um, kind of like weird, like inverted Calvinism where it's like, you work hard to like have good things because if you're successful, that proves you're like predestined to go into heaven. Whereas this is like, if you're successful, that proves that you worked hard, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. Which it's just like another step removed where like, obviously your success has nothing to do with how hard you work, but also, (laughs) yeah. It's also, you know, I'd say there's a quite a correlation as well between settler colonialism and that kind of thinking. 
like god damn it northern ireland is like that as well yeah so is the south fucker but there's one one thing i'd say um as well is uh is that uh like when i worked in my my old man where he worked uh it was like a farmer owned co-op so like it was a co-op that was set up to get farmers good prices for their milk right but the actual in the factory where the workers were working they were just wage workers right so it was kind of a different dynamic but because like there wasn't like a profit motive the kind of all the motive within the co-op and the managers and the staff was like let's try and keep this thing going that was the general thing it was just like yeah like we better we better do this or like the whole place will, will be out of a job that was the kind of the motivation and there was workers there was a couple of guys in there who basically wouldn't do anything like if if like say for example there was a problem with a machine went wrong and it was broken and product you didn't normally you'd finish at five o'clock in the evening and if you had to go on till 11 o'clock at night some night people would stay in and just do it but there was always one or two there's the same one or two guys they'd never stay around and you know in, in reality what happened was they were just not liked and people wouldn't bother talking to them <laughs> so like i i do kind of want to uh say something a bit like you know when we're talking about like could this work could that not work i do think that when production is social like it, it was it was very social in that in that co-op where i worked and like you know i i say it a few times like you know i'm not averse to like social ostracizing like you know as a as a kind of a as a, a method to um uh you know, it's a kind of a social pressure, a social mechanism, not in a kind of a terrible way where you're going to, like, treat people like shit. But I mean, when people act badly, other people actually uh, uh, reacting to that uh, socially is is really a, a thing that can hold, not just hold the thing together. I mean, like, people getting coming together and working hard, but also uh, uh, allows as a mechanism for uh, stopping, uh, you know other forms of exploitation like people not pulling their fair share I, I i know people you know some people think i'm awful hard when i uh talk about that but like if you read like um you know like you know hunter gatherer society or you know uh similar like less developed forms of you know productive societies or whatever like that kind of social pressure is everything it's fucking everything. And it's not negative. You don't really f- hear like the anthropologist go and say, yeah, it was really shitty. Sometimes I'm sure it can be. But like as a general rule, yeah, as a general rule, it seems to be a, a very strong thing. And I, I think that like we would expect to see more of this when the production is so social. Right. Well, and like part of the way that this is organized does help to address. They never say it explicitly, but it does help, I think, prevention potentially provide a basis to deal with the absence of the problem to hire and fire that you get from, you know, like property and ownership of productive capital, right? Because you need some level of like labor discipline and for any of this to work, there would have to be both inner firm and intra firm like forms of labor discipline, right? In other words, yeah. If you have somebody who just is coming to work and like not doing shit, like that person like needs to be punished or like kicked out or something. You know, you can't just come in here and just put all the work on everyone else around you. That's like antisocial behavior and it's not acceptable. Similarly, you can get if an entire like productive unit or firm that uh, there's just gets to be a really bad work culture in it. And it's all they're all kind of shitty. And so they would need to be disciplined 
by you know the other sectors of that industry and either like you know some sort of, of decertification or you know something would have to be done in order to you know deal with that kind of a problem you know and so the the fact that there is there does seem to be some kind of like mutual responsibility between firms in particular in a particular sector and because there's like transparent labor time accounting that allows you to look at the inputs and outputs and go okay well stuff's not getting done here what's what's the problem yeah one of the ways in which this is extraordinarily kind of elegant and beautiful in a way that just not used to being able to appreciate this as like a real thing so like you know it makes me wonder is that like we're because what, what you're saying is, uh, um, Tom, what you were saying about how, you know, face-to-face -face kind of people dealing with each other and like sociality and social pressure mattering, uh, in a way that I would maybe not romanticize as much, however, because, but it's just there. That's what's going to be like a big driving force. Um, whereas in capitalism, you have like, I am overwhelmed sometimes by, especially, you know, during uh, 2020, everyone being like, you know, more isolated than normal. However, the isolation was only a different degree from how people are more or less isolated. Like, it was just like, I don't know, when I was growing up, there would be snow, there'd be, sometimes just be snow season. And, you know, you, you, as computers were implemented, like you could do some work or something like during a snow day, but otherwise society was shut down. Like, so I, I'd experienced like my, microcosms of something like the sort of apex of capitalist alienation <laughs> that like we've been going through. So imagining like how social communism would be is alienating by itself. <laughs> anyway, I think we're still on the end of chapter three. We've been talking about sociality. Should we tackle chapter four? One thing I was going to say is that, like, when when if in in the if, if post revolution everybody went to this labor time planning, I don't know if we said it live, was that there may be uh, difficulties in understanding what the actual labor time involves in the in the fixed capital from a capitalist production system should be, so that using the labor time estimates for these things if we use money as a crude labor time estimate some kind of melt like the tssi that there could be actual problems with uh, reproduction in the early days you would probably want to overproduce. uh you would probably want to tax people more than strictly was necessary to make sure that we would able to cover our production in the first time i just thought that that might be something that might you might need to say there's, a, there's one extra thing, there's, sorry, there's one extra thing here, like, that's important about it that he mentions here, and it says, like, that the, the what's so amazingly brilliant about this is that it's so, I know we kind of barely, well, we maybe we've said it before, but it's like, it's all 100% um, open. It's so simple for a factory worker to understand that here's all our labor inputs, here are, here's our outputs, you know, it's so, and then they can see what their wages is. And this is going to this and that, and we decide the other. And here's my personal take-home pay, and here's this other shit I get for free. It's very, very transparent. Like I work, you know, if you're working for a corporation or something like that, what do you know? You know, fuck all, right? You don't know what your boss is getting paid. You don't know what the fella sitting beside you is getting paid. 
right? All you know is your wage. You don't know anything about like sales really or anything unless you work in sales. You don't know about your share price. You don't know about your manager's salary. You don't know about the ownership content. You don't know who the shareholders are. You don't know about dividends. You probably don't have a clue what's going on with your pension because you haven't got, you can't, it's so fucking boring, right? You don't know any of this stuff. It's all completely hidden to you. But like in this, it's all, it's just like, here you go, labor time planning. Oh yeah, I see it all. Cool. Yeah, right. All right, lads. Yeah, I think, I think, I guess what I was working up to is that part of the, the elegance that's like hard to believe is imagining that maybe like, and this isn't written in the text, but like just from the, the ability to solve the information problem based on workers telling the truth about, you know, their, about their conditions, you know, to just to be able to, you know, do the calculations. And it seems like a very transparent, simple thing in the text, but like the amount of like honesty that that assumes based on, at least in the alienated state socialisms, when that is attempted to be implemented, workers will fucking lie. So, and you know, good for them. <laughs> like, fuck that. <laughs> um, yeah, fucking right. Of course, you should lie. Yeah. Why shouldn't they? Yeah, why shouldn't they? Right. You got these, like, you got these dickheads in Goss Plan telling you what to do. Fuck you. I'm gonna fucking. I'm gonna start. <laughs> yeah, that was the workers. Like, yeah, it's hard to overstate how that like gummed up. That the was work. their power. That was their <laughs> yeah, power. Their power. <laughs> that was the yeah. Like people would, you know, sometimes exaggerate that USSR is a worker's paradise because of that. But, you know, it, it is like, it was like a real form of, of social resistance that was, you know, relatively autonomous. Um, and so in order to look at this system and its way of, of doing reporting, you know, based on the workers themselves, I don't know. I just sort of imagine that that sort of, there's got to be, you know, like mathematical institutional checks within, or else you're basically just relying on honesty in a world, you know, with that level of economic virtue and clarity and honesty. It's like, it's hard for me to imagine is, as I guess that, that, and in a way that th there is like a, a, a bit of a utopian solution to the information problem here. And I do think some, you know, advanced, you know, statistical techniques that a, or no, I'm sorry, advanced, um, I don't know, like advanced like sensor technologies and stuff. I don't know. The, the people that would be able to jam those things are exactly the people that would be working around it. But like still, like, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I would imagine that there would have to be some double counting or, or something. Well, and you can you should never underestimate like human beings' capacity to like gamify something. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, yeah, no, that, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying without saying it. Like that's it. Like I can't. I, like I have a hard time putting away the you know behavioral economics like game theory lens. Right. I mean, yeah. That like main yeah main, maintaining transparency would be the key because you know it's. I'm, I mean, obviously, like systems can be corrupt and everyone is like aware of it. But a lot, again, like if you look at the system now, everything, like every, all of the ideology is very much just like, oh, well, you don't understand, you know. Oh, well, it's more complicated than you think, you know. Um, or there's some kind of, you know, a shell game played with like responsibility. Well, if it wasn't for this, then we could do it. But um, 
but if things are transparent in a way, it's harder. It's harder to play that kind of a game. Like interest rates or the stock market. Like how many times have people said to me, like, what's the stock market? Like, what does it matter if it goes up or down? And you're like, well, well, actually, investment and like or interest rates. What difference does it make? Or what's the inflation? It's so abstract. No one has a clue what's going on. Like literally nobody has a clue. You can spend five years in economics doing a college or doing masters and most of these fuckers will not have an absolute and any understanding of what's going on. You know, it's so obfuscated. It's incredible. Yeah. Someone in the chat just made a blockchain joke in quotes because basically <laughs> they recommended using the distributed ledger system. That's the foundation of, of you know, the cryptocurrencies that... Uh, I think it's it's true. They Bitcoin should. is known for. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, be- block, yeah. A blockchain, blockchain ledger, uh, excuse me, blockchain um, ledgers would definitely be like a very transparent way of doing this. <laughs> like I think it's I like said it last week. It's like as the record. Yeah. I think I said it last week. Like, absolutely. It's the way to go. You've got your encryption stuff there. It's all up. Yep. Everybody can't be fucked with, you know, away you go. Like it's, right. and it, all it just takes it, is a, like a simple website, you know, a well-designed website, and you can go down through and you can just look at all these factories, look at different countries, production, blah, blah, blah. It'd be so, it'd be just like using Google Maps. Like, that's how easy yeah. it should be to be able to see. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's something every worker understands, blockchain. They don't even need to understand it. They just need to know you can't corrupt it. True. Yeah, that the, the data is all like highly encrypted and there's no fucking around with it. You know, that's all you need to know. Honestly, I, I don't think the basic concept of blockchain is too hard. And I think even some of the technical details, like in a in a society with more social support would, like literacy for that wouldn't be too, too low. Like, I think a lot of people can understand this. And that's why it's part of why it's like an infectious concept. Yeah, we also we also got stuck holding the bag on Dogecoin. Uh, I bought into that big, so I'm, I need my I need everyone who's listening to buy into this. Um, it's for communism. Oh God! You do you know? Like I nearly bought five thousand. Uh, I nearly bought uh, three thousand Bitcoin for two two dollars a pop, and by twenty eleven, and I would be currently worth like I think forty million if I had held onto them, but I didn't. I don't. I don't even give a shit. To be honest with you, it's just like a joke. But like, I'm sure I mean, some Bitcoin people would sucks, really. Though. I, I, just, I think I think how much of an asshole I'd be though. I'm bad enough. Imagine if I had forty million. I wouldn't probably wouldn't have read Marx. I would have went, oh yeah, I deserve this shit. But you know what would have happened though? You would have put it on like you would have put it on one of those uh, wallets or whatever, and then you forgot how to open it. That's it. Did you see the guy in? Uh, there's a guy in England. And he got paid something like 7,000 Bitcoin in 20, 2011 or something. And he threw it out the wrong, uh, he threw out his wrong hard drive and it went to the landfill. And now apparently it's worth something like $225 million. And he asked the the county council, is like, I'll pay you like $60 million if you let me go into your, uh, you know, your landfill and sift through it. And they said, no, you're all right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I always hate that where people are like, man, if I just bought Apple stock in the 80s, I'd be so yeah. rich right now. It's like, yeah, if you just spent like 
a thousand, if you just put like $5,000 into a random stock and then sat on it for 30 years, you know, yeah, if you just done that. Yeah. Like, if, if only I had backed the winner of every Grand National since 1904, yeah. I'd be rich. But how much <laughs> money I'd have. Yeah. There's a, there's a really good sentence here he, he says on just about the workers' councils, which I thought is kind of a very Marxist point to make. It's where he says, it was out of the very practice of the revolutionary class struggle itself, which created the system of workers' councils as its instrument, that simultaneously the concept of average social labor time as a concrete formulation was born. I like that. You know, this idea of the social nexus or whatever social forms that capital has brought together and the revolution has sprung forth should be the basis of the actual proper you know structure of communist society there's something kind of very deep in that kind of developmental link it feels really i don't know it just really coheres so uh chapter four chapter four um, average social production time is the basis for production. We've done that, haven't we? We've done four, run to five. Haven't we? Yeah, well, I've been talking about it the whole time. Fuck it, I don't know. We start with another dunk session. <laughs> um, so we have, we have Kautsky's definition. Like, this This one is, is a fast, right? Like, there's just like... Each verse of this, you know, razor sharp beef like response is just like directed at a different person. This is definitely like rap battle polemic mode. Basically, Kautsky's skeptical that you can calculate labor time at an industrial level. And the authors basically say, like, if you decentralize the calculation, it's feasible. If it was done like at a, at a, at each individual firm did their own labor time calculation, and then sent that information upwards, it would be doable. Yeah, basically, Kautsky has this weird thing where he thinks it's possible in theory, but not in practice. Maybe that's like a forces of production thing where the where it could be possible, but there was no way to do it. Um, he might have at the time. He might have. Yeah, I think it's. I I do have this like sinking feeling that maybe at the time that he might have been right. But um, but that is a different position from Block, who's like, no, the only way you could do it is with money, like even in even in concept. Kautsky has this open that the it's conceptually possible, but you know it, it can't be done. Whereas Lichter is like, hey, this is to- this is totally possible. Uh, so again, Lichter, even though he's thrown in with Kautsky and you know like as this like someone who wants to instill a new law of value in socialism. He, he looked pretty good in Mexikowski. <laughs> and yeah, even, even Block seems a bit more consistent or he's just like, I don't know, there's something nice and stark about someone that just rejects the whole thing and says, now nah, you have to use money. Like it really clarifies, this, <laughs> clarifies what's at stake. I mean, you know, if it came down to it, I don't know, like I don't, I don't hate market socialism like I used to. I mean, obviously, again, I'm team times chits all the way. But if it did come down to there had to be like some form of markets or some use of like currency, like, I don't know, it wouldn't be the end of the world. You know what I'm saying? I think would it really be a different mode of production? I think if you have it, the tend- I think there are certain 
elements of like value form that if they stay around they'll fuck you up that's the way i look at it like i think if you have markets and i think if you have differential pay that the tendency will be towards things heading back towards the same old same old you know that's that that's my general gist and if value if the value dynamic will find a way you know it's like goddamn jurassic park you know value will find a way there's well, there's even a proposal somewhere in this book about labor money right like you know it it's held up as a negative example essentially because it ends like it ends up functioning so much like value money like in capitalism that it's like essentially a different proposal as far as the author is concerned it's not time chips so yeah the price policies like some of the like when they get down to it like I suppose we might as well just run into it. Like, like Varga, I think was like he was involved in the Hungarian Revolution, and like their ideas were that they would have essentially, you know, talking about like a, a kind of a strange way of doing it. But they went and they priced the price of shoes at the at the price of the worst shoemaker right so if there's three shoes one doing had like a shoe is worth like it done in one hour another one's done in two hours and the one is done in three hours you would put a price of like three on all shoes and then the 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 profits that the other company the other shoe factories would get like the ones that are producing it for two and one their surpluses would then go into a general pot of like basically like state taxation or whatever and then they would spend it and you know on other stuff and they would control certain prices and they would put taxation high on a luxury product and low on this and they would give out free bread and they would do this and it would just become this like bureaucratic thing and it was all like so uh kind of probably political as 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 opposed to something that uh has its foundations coming out of production and it sits on top of the stuff. So it really like goes to town on some of these uh, uh, problems that were in these systems that didn't actually use labor time planning. You know, Pura Varga doesn't come out as too good. That's that's all I, I suppose you want to see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kautsky and Varga are in favor of a price fixing kind of scheme. Like the, there's this like, I don't know, there's a sort of notion in Varga about this, you know, scientific determination of how much somebody needs. <laughs> that sounds, doesn't sound great. <laughs> yeah. And he, he comes, he, he points out to like that in, in the, like in under these schemes, there's like three different types of wages, like your nominal wage, which is your money wage, like your real or actual wage. So that's the amount of goods you actually get in your basket and your relative wage, basically, uh, your relative wage is defined by the relationship of the real wage to the gross capital profit. Okay, so like if the rate of profit is going way high and you're still only receiving your 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 shitty basket goods hasn't gone up in years. So that these three type of wages in capitalism, and he goes and he basically goes, look in Varga and Leiter's schemes, you got those three wage forms, yeah. And so like any system like they're going to call itself socialist that has the three different type of wage forms still existent. It's not really a socialism. And I think you can make that case for, you know, uh, the Soviet system as well would have all of those three different types of wages, you know. So he, he really gives these guys a hard time. 
Yeah, this is the actual, you know, I think Varga is reflecting on what was actually implemented in the Hungarian Revolution by the, the Soviet. And, you know, there's like a supreme economic kind of council, essentially, that ends up, you know, becoming the central planning center. This is, it, it, he transitions, I mean, I guess Kautsky, Kautsky's like, Kautsky was mainly the theoretician of SPA, like, before it, before it was like, this, no, I can't even say that he was mainly, how do I say this? Kautsky was Kautsky's, shit. <laughs> Kautsky's career includes, like, relative, like, I don't know, relative, I don't, I don't know how to say this. Like, because the SPA day, I'm really struggling here just to say this, but it's like the SPA day straddles. Kautsky's career straddles between like a time when the SPA day wasn't like the biggest force in politics and when it was, right? So like, even though a lot of what he's targeting in Kautsky is after the SPA day has like, but this here is, is a critique of an actual revolutionary attempt. Like, that is, you know, I don't know, like we basically disown the the electoral victory of the SPA Day in 1918 as, as being a revolution implicitly. Like most Marxists don't think of that as a German revolution, like today, like even though that's what it was called at the time. Um, there's a sense in which that wasn't like a real, it just, by the way, you know, this is sort of implicit, by the way, Marxists kind of deal with it. Um, so like, there's something particularly poignant about his critique of Varga because this was reflected in the Soviet attempt. I, I think maybe it's a mistake to disown, you know, the so-called German revolution. It's just, you know, it's clearly not what we were hoping for, it, but it was the victory of like a, a socialist force. He, he mentions here as well, like about how the, these, like the, the control of distribution is actually a control over production which is, I think, correct. He says these central... So basically there would be central distribution points in like in the, in the Hungarian Revolution. He said these central distribution points were, however, no means, by no means simply organs of distribution. They operated simultaneously as instruments of political and economic power since they consciously sought to promote the concentration of production through their controls of material supply. You know, you could just basically, you know, force the, the the if you didn't say if you didn't want to give steel, say, to a certain factory that was under like workers councils, they could just do it. They could say, no, we don't like you. You over there, you're not getting what you want. Like, so the actual distribution became a big like power point, uh, like, sorry, a power source in society that the, um, you know, that the central economic council would use as a you know you know a hammer to crush elements that in society they didn't want yeah so uh Lakeser appears in here too doing the same price fixing thing um price fixing of course gets most creepy when it's determining I income <laughs> it's determining you know your fixed income basically the points of the chapter that's it for this week Please join us in two weeks for the conclusion of this conversation. Uh, if you want to support the show, uh, you can subscribe to us on Patreon. If you want to get hold of us, uh, you can 
tweet at us or email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.